0: I'm Eric Scruwala, and this is Rhinoceros.
1: So, I see a lot of people on Twitter, like when they see, for example, the Carter Page FISA, and they're like, why hasn't he been arrested or tried? And I'm like, because that's not the point. The point in... The FISA was to collect foreign intelligence, and the fact that it got renewed three times meant that they were going in and showing the judge that they were collecting intelligence on an adversary. I suspect Russia um, and what Russia was up to. Um, so yes, these are very different sides involving different techniques, um, you know, different methods and uh, different goals. Really.
0: That's Asha Rangappa. She's a former FBI counterintelligence agent and a current CNN legal analyst. She's describing the FBI's goals and methods and counterintelligence efforts and how they differ from the FBI's law enforcement mandate, a distinction that's often ignored. We also talked about which Shakespeare play best represents the Trump administration. That and more from Asha in just a moment. On March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese was brutally murdered in Queens, New York. Although a number of witnesses heard her cries for help, several people failed to take any action to help her, believing, incorrectly, that someone else would. Indications are that early voting for the midterm election, which has already begun in many states, has been robust with turnout rivaling and, in some cases, surpassing early voting in the 2016 presidential election. Michael McDonald, a political science professor at the University of Florida, predicts that the surge of early voting suggests a high turnout for the midterm election in November. Even with the heightened enthusiasm surrounding this election, McDonald predicts a participation rate of 45 to 55 percent. 45 to 55 percent. An article at 538.org suggests that turnout among young voters could also be significantly higher in 2018 than in prior years. But of course, by significantly higher, We're talking maybe 40%, and this is despite the efforts of Parkland survivors Emma Gonzalez and David Hogue driving youth participation. We forget that although the Nazi party never won a majority of the vote, Hitler rose to power in part through the electoral process. In March 1933, two months after Hitler was named Chancellor, and just days after the Reichstag fire, Germans went to the polls for parliamentary elections and the Nazi party won enough seats in parliament for Hitler to consolidate power in 1933 and 1934 that turned out to be the last free and fair election in Germany for many years the level of engagement activism and organizing of the resistance movement has been inspiring but the best a resistance movement can hope for is to provide a check against power taking power back requires a different form of participation in the road to unfreedom Tim Snyder writes that the meaning of each election is the promise of the next one. Americans will go to the polls on November 6th. What will the next Congress look like? With polls tightening, signs of a significant blue wave appear to be eroding. If the Republicans manage to hold on to both the House and the Senate, will there be anyone left willing to put limits on this president? And so the fundamental question is this. Will we answer the cry for help from our democratic institutions? Will enough Americans get out and vote, or will we once again be bystanders to history and allow a majority of a minority to determine who our representatives will be? We only get as much democracy as we are willing to show up for. As Abraham Lincoln said, elections belong to the people. If they decide to turn their backs on the fire and burn their behinds, then they will just have to sit on their blisters. Our Twitter handle is at rhinocerospod. Be sure to follow us and send us your comments, questions, and suggestions to rhinocerospod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail message at 203-941-1737. Happy today to welcome Asha Rangappa. Uh, She is a CNN legal analyst and former FBI agent in counterintelligence. Asha, how are you doing?
1: Good, thanks.
0: Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Um, So you and I have a couple things in common. Um, We are both uh, Indian American. um, And so your recent column on Columbus Day really resonated with me. Uh, (laughs) Because, um, you know, I don't know how many times I've said, oh, well, what are you? I'm Indian. Well, what tribe? And, you know, I have my I'm really annoyed at you answer and I have my I'm trying to be polite answer
1: right is that
0: is that still a thing for you do you still get that
1: well I don't get it uh now I mean I'm at Yale (laughs) in New Haven I think I'm generally around uh people that you know for whom that wouldn't be um they wouldn't be confused by that but I think it's also just a different time now I mean I think as you probably know like and i don't know when you were growing up i was growing up in the 80s yeah me too at a time when there weren't that many indians in the state in the united states to begin with period and right. you know where i was growing up in hampton virginia there were hardly any just even in our geographic vicinity i was the only indian kid in my whole school so it was a time that where i think indian americans were a much more invisible minority than they are now, um, and you know clearly there was no there were no South Asians on t v or in <laughs> news no. or in Congress or you know or anywhere, so I think right. that that kind of cultural confusion could be more expected then. Um, yeah. I hope that even in Virginia today, I wouldn't get those questions, but I can't entirely guarantee that
0: every now and again, I still get, Oh, like India from Indian, from India. And I, right. you know, will say, well, is there any other
1: India? that? Right. that up?
0: <laughs> I don't understand that. Anyway. And anyway, I thought that was really kind of a cool connection that you and I had because we we both have that background growing up. Um, so we've learned a few things this week that I wanted to kind of talk to you about. Um, one thing is um, I, I, I I guess I learned that uh, maybe I shouldn't have asked you to have this conversation so late in the day. Um, Chuck Grassley said last week, and this is a direct quote, he was asked about why there aren't more uh, women Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, and he said, and I quote, it's a lot of work. I mean, don't forget, compared to a lot of committee meetings, we have an executive session for every Thursday. So it's a lot of work. Maybe they don't want to do it. And, and I, was, I had this conversation last week with um, Leah Greenberg from uh, the Indivisible Movement. And we were talking about the new influx of candidates um, and, and seeing a change in who's running for office. Um, you know, it's so weird to see see Chuck Grassley now and then videos of him 26 years ago. Uh, it, it seems like there is... Um, that we're looking at a potential change in, in who our representatives are. Do you see that as well? Well,
1: I, I think there's definitely, you know, a a difference in the kind of people that have been um, spurred to run. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm not a political analyst, so I'm not in the weeds on different races and stuff. Um, But I think, you know, generally speaking, I would say that, you know Chuck Grassley, and frankly, a lot of those men on the Judiciary Committee are from a generation that is really out of touch with, I think, what's going on now, particularly <laughs> with women. Um, I also uh, think Chuck Grassley might be a person who still doesn't know the difference between Indians and Native Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: you're probably
1: oh, right. I mean, I don't know if we give him pass because you yeah. know he's he's older um
0: but considering the hearing we just had what a strange thing to say
1: it was just it's just a bizarre thing to say and i think you know when i hear stuff like that i just think he's out of touch yeah and it's just the you know um he both i I think doesn't like he doesn't even understand what it sounds like to say that um I don't even know what he meant by that. Like, the, did he literally mean that like women can't do the, or is he just like, well, this isn't one of the most sought after committees, which I don't think is true. I think being on a judiciary committee is pretty prestigious is my yeah. understanding. But um, yeah, I, I really don't have much to yeah. say about
0: that. Oh, well, that was bizarre. Um, so another thing we also learned, uh, Mitt Romney, who's running for Senate in Utah said, I, guess, I don't know if it was today or yesterday that um, President Trump should not be impeached because he's president. Um, Who said this? uh, Mitt Romney said we shouldn't impeach Trump because he's president. He's a sitting president and you shouldn't impeach a sitting president. Now, I don't think Mitt Romney is that dumb. But, um, and and again, you know, there's, in my head today, you know, today a lot, I'm thinking about, what we just witnessed in the Senate um, with this Kavanaugh nomination um, and, you know, the degree to which the, you know, the Republicans really appear to be uh, molding everything they do to please this president. Um, And here's a guy who, you know, stood up and gave a speech calling him a fraud and a huckster and all sorts of other things. And he says today, Trump should not be impeached because he's the sitting president.
1: Now, are you saying, did he say impeached or did he say indicted?
0: No, no, he said impeached. He said impeached. Trump should not be impeached because he is a sitting. Well,
1: president. who else would you impeach? Like, what's the, that's the whole point of impeachment is because he is the president and presumably you can't indict him. So that would be the way to remove him. I don't really understand the argument that he's making.
0: I don't understand either. But, it, you know, it, 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 it's just strange to me that, to, to see someone who just two short years ago was so adamantly opposed to Trump being president. And, you know, he's come 180, 540. I mean, I have to be
1: honest, I would need more context because I think that it really depends on what what he is saying with that. Because that, I mean, it doesn't really make sense as a sentence.
0: No, it doesn't make any sense. But
1: what he's saying is, you know, we don't want to impeach a president because that is causes a great deal of national upheaval and political upheaval and is damaging to the country. Um and we should remove him by you know the political process, which is to vote. I mean, I don't think that is really a, an outrageous argument. Um, you know, that was part of the reason that Republicans want asked Richard Nixon to resign right. to avoid going through that kind of um, of process and spectacle and kind of having, you know, putting the United States on the world stage with, with something like that, which is, you know, even if you don't like whoever is president, I mean, an impeachment is, you know, it's, it's not a pleasant ordeal in terms of wanting that to be the focus of what your country is doing. Right. So I think I would need to hear more about w- what he meant by that or because... On its face, that doesn't sound like a very coherent thing to say.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. He said, the direct quote was, I don't think it makes sense to be talking about impeachment, not for a sitting president. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, (laughs) uh, so that was something I learned this week. Um, And so we alluded to a little bit about the Kavanaugh nomination um, recently, and so I think think we learned some weird things about due process, too. Uh, Susan Collins, in her floor speech, saying she was going to vote for Kavanaugh, said, and I quote, in evaluating any given claim of misconduct, we will be ill-served in the long run if we abandon the presumption of innocence and fairness, tempting though it may be. Um, And then contrast that with a recent Trump rally where a reference to Dianne Feinstein led to cheers of lock her up. So, what does due process mean these days?
1: Um, I, <laughs> I'm not really sure. I mean, I think that uh, Susan Collins, you know, the the problem is that they're conflating they're conflating different kinds of burdens of proof in different contexts. Right. Um. You know, confirmation hearings are not trials. They're not about determining guilt or innocence. They're not about um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's about whether the person is suitable for that particular appointment. And in the case of the judiciary, it's a lifetime appointment. Um, I used to be the dean of admissions at Yale Law School for 12 years. So one of the things that I did as one of the gatekeepers to one of the most elite institutions, which, by the way, Judge Kavanaugh went to. I was not dean of admissions when he was admitted, by the way. is you, you also look at someone's character and fitness to uh, enter the bar. And that is not about whether they committed crimes, there, there can be someone who it doesn't have a criminal record, but m- may not meet the character and fitness standards for the bar. So this is, you know, beyond just like criminal activity, which is like the floor, you know. <laughs> right. um, and so I think that with Susan Collins, when she's talking about presumption of innocence and all of this stuff, I think she is obfuscating what the real question is, which was, has there been information that has come to light, um, that, and that has shed doubt on whether this person is suitable to hold a position of public trust for the rest of his life. Right. And I think, um, You know, if it was just the allegation standing alone, um, maybe reasonable people could disagree, though, you know, even there you had uh, other people with at least some of the, with the Yale allegation um, by Debbie Ramirez willing to corroborate her story. But I think what sent it over the top, in my opinion, was his performance at the hearing. Yes. Which was angry and kind of a little unhinged and partisan and, you know, just not what you expect to see from a judge, much less a justice on the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, and, you know, there are people that want to excuse the anger. And even if you can excuse the anger, how do you excuse the the real partisan, um, you know, the partisan protestations? Like this is revenge from the Clintons for Donald Trump losing an election? Yeah,
1: that's like that's like weird alt right conspiracy theory that's it, now like apparently made it to the Supreme Court. I mean, that's weird. It's just that, weird. It's a weird thing to say.
0: It it it. And I don't
1: even understand. Does he mean that it's revenge from like Bill Clinton, like from the nineties? Because that's the case that he worked on with Kenneth Starr. Did he mean? Hillary Clinton because she lost to Trump. I mean, it's just, it was just bizarre.
0: Or a tag team of the both of them thought, oh, you know.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and I think, again, ignores the fact that Neil Gorsuch was nominated and confirmed with basically no issue at all. Right. So if there was some kind of weird, you know left-wing conspiracy like wouldn't it have come up with him too who by the way also went to georgetown prep um right so you know wouldn't
0: wouldn't there be more of a reason to do it with gorsuch because you know of the lingering animosity about merrick garland because that's that was the guy who was taking quote-unquote merrick garland's seat
1: exactly if if, if there was i i think that's totally right and i mean it was also coming on the heels of the election. Um, I mean, that was really early on, right? I mean, probably yes. immediately after. So, you know, if you want to talk about the height of when there would have been anger and resentment in terms of the Hillary camp or something like that would have been the nomination. And and again, as you mentioned just now for Merrick Garland never, uh, you know, being brought to the floor for a vote, um, he would have been the one that they should have, they would have attacked. Like, why would right. it come a year and a half later?
0: Exactly. Exactly. And it's so weird because if you take those comments out of context, I, I don't mean it out of context, but if you just listen them in isolation, you can imagine Alec Jones saying everything that he said in his speech to the Judiciary Committee.
1: It was weird. And also the defensiveness on the drinking was super weird.
0: it It, it didn't ring true. None of it rang true. No. You know, the answers on what, uh, what was it, boofing and like all of that stuff from the yearbook. And the
1: Renata Alumni Club, which he claimed was just because they think she's awesome. Okay.
0: All right, all right, tell me. If, if it really was, <laughs> oh, you're awesome and you're one of the team, then why, why did she didn't know? she know about it?
1: Why didn't she know? Thank
0: you. I, I you know, it, it, I... It's
1: just dumb. I mean, come <laughs> on. That is just, that insults everyone's intelligence.
0: Yes. But there's a piece of this where it feels like you know, this is sort of how we play gender politics, right? If, if you know, she had to come in, Dr. Ford had to come in, and get and and give her testimony in the way she did. You know, very even. She didn't get angry. She didn't um, even even when she was asked really insulting questions. She never lost her cool, lost her temper. Mm-hmm. And if she had, she would have been oh, it would have been over nailed for it. Yeah. Right. But he comes in with this bizarre yeah,
1: I'm like, yo-yo yeah and, and I'm gonna put him on the
0: supreme court right 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 and it and it brings me to and i want to talk about this too the concept of corroboration this i mean i yell at my tv asha far too often but this really got me going because if we're going to believe what everybody's saying about no corroboration then the only way to corroborate what she's saying is if the two people that assaulted her admitted it
1: that's, right. that's the only
0: thing that is going to convince a bunch of people that her story was corroborated that's not how it works is it
1: no i mean corroboration can come in many forms um you know, it's do details of her story match up with things? So, for ex- I mean, and whether they relate to the uh, the actual attack or not. Like I, I know she said that she ran into Mark Judge at the Safeway like several weeks later, and you know, yes. they could have verified that he was working there at that time frame, for example. Um, you know, verifying that she knew him in the way that she said that she did that. She was introduced to him by, a fr- I mean, you know, th- that's what you do is you, you test the veracity by testing like details, um, e- you know, that, that can be verified, right. um, that start to get to, well, then we are, you know, she is telling the truth on, on all of these other things. The other kind of the other weird thing about it is, you know, if she were fabricating it, why would she put an eyewitness in the room? who's this guy's best friend, like that's really not helpful to you. If you're trying to make something up, you know what I'm saying? Um, And you know, like, it's just a weird thing. Like, why would she put Mark judge in the room? Right. um, Who has every reason to actually discredit her to help his friend. Right. Um, That's not in her interest. So, you know, you have those things. And then on the Kavanaugh side, You have things that, um, you know, when people were like, who cares about his drinking? Well, you know, it may not be relevant to today unless he has some kind of ongoing problem, but it's relevant to the allegation because, you know, as a former FBI agent, I know that, you know, there are certain things about people's behavior. And one is that they behave in patterns. So for example, if, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was never known for touching alcohol in high school it would be highly unlikely that on a random night he got completely drunk and assaulted somebody like that wouldn't that's not consistent with how people behave on the other hand if he was frequently intoxicated and out of control and um you know unable to remember what what happened then it doesn't necessarily mean that her story is absolutely without a doubt true, but it does tend to corroborate it in the sense right. that there is a yet another aspect of it that is consistent with what we know to be true about the alleged assailant. So that's what corroboration is. And again, it's not a court of law. It could be that even with all this corroboration, he would never be convicted by a jury, which requires, re- which re- requires uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, guilt, but that's not the standard. As I mentioned earlier, um, the question is: Is this, a, you know, a credible allegation that calls into question his suitability for the job?
0: How much do you think the um, the Julie Swetnick allegations made it easy for, uh, you know, the Senate Republicans to to dismiss Dr. Ford's allegations and Debbie Ramirez's allegations? Do you think that played into it at all?
1: I don't think so. I think it's an easy scapegoat um in hindsight? Yeah. You know, for both sides. Um right. but I think that no. I think you know, had had the FBI been allowed to do a full you know, investigation of these allegations um at least in terms of checking them out, you know, as part of a supplemental background check, I think that the Republicans would have been in big trouble and they knew it, which was why the White House limited the scope of that investigation.
0: Right. And there's a difference. I mean, I'm sure you can tell me this. There's a difference between being interviewed by an FBI agent and giving a written statement through an attorney under penalty of felony or whatever, penalty you might want to attach it. There's a big difference
1: in those. Yeah. Two. I mean, there's several differences. Like, first of all, a statement doesn't necessarily all, answer all the questions that the FBI might want to ask. Um, right. And the FBI is trained to home in on things like inconsistent details or something that, um, or, or alternative, something that they might be able to verify or corroborate, which you might not even realize when you're saying it, you know, so they have an ask follow up questions and, um, assess your demeanor and all that. Now, um, in a background check, they wouldn't actually put any kind of credibility determinations into the interview, but they, they are going to use those clues to in terms of directing the questions they ask in the mm-hmm. interview.
0: Right.
1: Um, and again, as you are suggesting, um, when you talk to an FBI agent, you are doing it with the knowledge, and they will tell you this before you start the interview, that if you lie to them, that could be a federal crime.
0: Right. That right. can be
1: prosecuted. So, um, yeah, we've,
0: we've seen a few people get indicted and and plead guilty to that recently, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I, what is your take on you know, is this one of those things that oh, you know, a year from now we'll all forget it, or is this one of those things that lingers um, in terms of of uh, the Supreme Court and the integrity of the court? Is it something we need to be concerned about in your opinion?
1: I think we absolutely need to be concerned about it. Um, I have to be honest. I would have preferred to see a a more conservative justice on the court that did not have these questions about their character or, or impartiality, because even when you disagree with a philosophy and that's how they're justifying an opinion that you don't agree with, you know... I have such deep respect for the Supreme court as an institution and the role that it's played in this country. Um, it's, you know, it's been so pivotal at at moments uh, for good and bad. I mean, they've made some, you know, really bad decisions, but I think that overall it is an institution that until now has been respected by everyone. Even if they, even if they disagree with the outcomes that, that it comes out, they're like, okay, that's what the Supreme Court said. And I think for it to now become yet another, like, you know, for people to become cynical about it is really upsetting because unlike politicians, you can't vote them out and kind of re rehabilitate with like a new person, you know, um, the character of the institution. The institution is, are the people, like the Supreme Court character is based on the people who make it up and they're there for like for a long time.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, and there, and and obviously there are plenty of decisions that I would disagree with. Um, and that a lot of people disagree with, but you don't question the legitimacy of the decision itself. That's right. That is what the law is. I, I, you know, I, I don't know how, I don't know how, um, how you, how you don't question the legitimacy of, of what this court does and particularly with some of the issues that are going to come up relative to this particular president yes, uh, and issues that are relevant to the things that are under investigation now. And it, it, I I agree with you. It's, it's a really dangerous situation. Um, And listen, every president has the right to name, you know, his or her, you know, a Supreme court justice that he or she chooses uh, whether I agree with their judicial philosophy or not. But, um, it, it seems like there is no floor of what, you know, th- there is no minimum floor for what's acceptable anymore. You know, yeah. we, we we could just pick some random person off the street and they could be confirmed to the Supreme court. Um, and that I think is dangerous.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this was especially disappointing for me. Like, you know, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington post when, uh, Kavanaugh was nominated because at the time there were a lot of um, calls that if he were confirmed, this was before any of the allegations, by the way, but you know, if he were confirmed, he would need to recuse uh, from anything involving the president. And I wrote, you know, a defense of him if he's confirmed. I mean, I said, look, he should go through the confirmation process. And if there's other reasons to not confirm him, fine. But once he's on the court, we need to trust that, you know, precisely because it's a lifetime appointment and there's nothing that the president can hold over his head that he's going to apply the law.
0: Right. Um,
1: and I think, unfortunately, you know, his very partisan comments, I I now can't really back that, you know, um, that take that I had.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it really calls into question his ability to be impartial for, for certain issues that come before him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So have you, I want to switch gears a little bit because it's kind of relates, but um, you're a former FBI agent in counterintelligence. Can you recall a time when the FBI has been this much of a political football? I mean, it seems like every month the FBI is at the center of one controversy or another. I don't remember a time when that's happened before.
1: No, I don't either. And I mean, you know, I, I was born right after watergate so i was very young when stuff like the church hearings were happening um i feel like by the time i kind of had a political consciousness in the 80s the fbi was a fairly respected institution again you know right um and you know because it had after you know it had had a lot of civil rights violations issues about internal spying under Hoover and going after draft Dodgers in the 70s. So there, it had a little checkered history there. I think it largely rehabilitated, rehabilitated itself. When I went into the FBI in 2002, it was right after nine 11. Mm -hmm. And so the FBI was going through a really, um, it was a really interesting time to be there because it, the FBI was under attack in many ways, but not for political reasons. It was for, are you up to the job? Mm. Because, you know, there was a a huge feeling that the FBI had really dropped the ball along with the CIA. I mean, you know, all the intelligence community was under the gun, but especially the FBI, because, you know, they're the domestic uh, law enforcement. And so I do know what it feels like to be in an organization when the microscope is on you, when you're being questioned, But I think this is a very different kind of questioning because, you know, it's not about, you know, do we need to restructure? Do we need to, you know, move resources around or create a different agency? This is about, you know, are you honest? And, you know, are you able to even like uphold your oath to, like, it's questioning the integrity of the actual people in the Bureau. Um, You know, not its capacity as an institution. Um, And that's a uh, that I don't recall the last time unless it was around the 70s. maybe.
0: I mean, to me, it feels like it's being they're being scapegoated for political gain.
1: I think so. And And it's, it's easy to do that because the Department of Justice and, you know, and the FBI, which is a part of the Department of Justice, can't speak out. I mean, it's a part of its own policy. And this is what got Comey into, you know, James Comey into trouble when he was director is that they make it a policy to not speak so that they don't look political. But then right. what's happening is that they're now, you know, the narrative has been that they are political and they aren't really in a position to defend themselves.
0: And, you know, and if, if, if qualification to work in the FBI is that you have no partisan view whatsoever and not have an opinion on what's happening in the country in Washington, will we ever find another FBI agent to work at the Bureau? I mean, doesn't everybody it, what was have? the first
1: part again? Well,
0: because it, I mean, it seems like if you, if you take the argument that's being made about the FBI, uh, you'd have to conclude that the only person who can work there is someone who has absolutely no political views whatsoever. Right. There's no opinions
1: whatsoever. Yeah, and that's just completely... Um, unrealistic, right? I mean, you know, FBI agents are real people. Like, it's like in the magazines in the grocery store, they're just like us. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they come in all political stripes. I think they, the FBI generally hues conservative, but, you know, you, you find people of all, all along the political spectrum. Um, you know, I'm sure they have, you know, everybody has their own preferences on candidates, but they're not letting that come to uh, work and it doesn't influence their their job, and that's the issue and I think yes, it's becoming conflated that if FBI agent actually has you know in their private civic life has any political views at all that somehow they're unable to discharge their job and I think that's a reflection more on the people who are saying it yes. who are completely unable to disidentify from um, their uh, you know, political loyalties um as it does you know i I mean i I think it reflects more on them than actually on uh, the agents
0: and why wouldn't the reverse be true so if all of these fbi agents were so-called anti-trump people and therefore they can't investigate him do we think that a pro-trump person if that argument holds water then isn't the reverse true as well or not the reverse but the the opposite true as well Right. Actually, well, uh, yeah. pro- have a pro person, person investigating. I mean,
1: exactly. And then what are you going to start doing? Like, you right. know, giving everybody the uh, third degree on what their political views are before you hire them, which, by the way, is legal. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> right, um, right, Yeah, it's it's just gotten absurd.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about the FBI that may not be totally understood by a lot of people is this kind of they kind of have a dual role, don't they? There's a there's a section of the FBI that's engaged in domestic law enforcement, and then there's a section of the FBI engaged in intelligence gathering and counterterrorism. And there's differences between the way those two operate, isn't there?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, the criminal side is about investigating violations of federal law, you, you know, and whatever they're investigating, you, you would be able to look it up in the U.S. Code and gathering evidence to meet the evidence, the elements of that crime, and working with a prosecutor to put together a case that's eventually going to see the inside of a courtroom. And counterintelligence cases are completely different. So the FBI also has a mandate to um, monitor and, and stop, you know, foreign intelligence activity occurring inside the United States. It's not the CIA, it's the FBI. So when other countries send their foreign intelligence services here to do everything from economic espionage where they might be, you know, stealing trade secrets to kind of more of the traditional stuff to steal it, you know, stealing defense secrets to disseminating propaganda or trying to exert political influence without letting say politicians know, you know, who they're working for. All of these things fall under the FBI. And, the goal in these cases is not to see the inside of a courtroom it's to neutralize the operations yeah, yeah. of the adversary which is to make them ineffective um and you know that can take different forms um but it's typically not going to involve prosecuting them number one because many most spies are here under diplomatic cover so you can't prosecute them they have diplomatic immunity Mm-hmm. But also because in the game of spy versus spy, your advantage comes from not letting your adversary know what you know. Right. So, for example, if you know that, hey, they have a spy in DOD who's passing them, you know, defense secrets, it's better for from the U.S. government point of view to let them keep going, except you just start feeding them false secrets. Right. You, start, right. you know, does you you just give them bad information so they start start making the wrong missile defense or whatever it is um, that benefits us? Because then we're also screwing them over. Right. <laughs> um, you know? But right. if suddenly we're like, aha, we know you're getting defense secrets, then they're going to stop and they're just going to go find another way to do it. And then and then the FBI is back to square one. So I see a lot of people on Twitter, like when they see, for example, the Carter Page FISA, and they're like, why hasn't he been arrested or tried? And I'm like, because that's not the point. Right. The point in the FISA was to collect foreign intelligence. And the fact that it got renewed three times meant that they were going in and showing the judge that they were collecting intelligence on an adversary, I suspect Russia, um, and what Russia was up to. Um so yes, these are very different sides involving different techniques, um, you know, different methods and uh, different goals, really.
0: Right. I think that also has been a tool that that um, some have used to, and and the Carter Page example is the is exactly the right one where they've um, used this confusion over over the multiple roles the FBI has yep. to to really sow some disinformation and and really false criticism of the way the fbi is operated
1: i think that's right
0: yeah yeah um so uh you've written a lot about um the Mueller investigation and um there are a lot of people obviously that are concerned about whether the white house can shut down the investigation or effectively nullify it um but you seem to ha- you you've suggested that he's done some things to kind of insulate the investigation from potential white house interference. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: You mean my op-ed yesterday in the yeah. times basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I just think at this point the genie is out of the bottle. Like so whoever comes in to 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 oversee this investigation, like say if if Rosenstein is fired and someone comes in, they can't they can't get the genie back in the bottle. And what's been out what's out is out. Um you know, there have been new cases opened. Right. Uh, there have been investigative techniques used and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of pieces of, of documents and evidence collected um from that. Um, interviews have been done, you know, um and and multiple field offices. I mean, we we think of the Mueller investigation as as Mueller and like his 10 prosecutors and maybe like two FBI agents or something. That's not (laughs) the case. Right. right. Um, You know, for a case of this magnitude, uh, you know, they're sending leads out to other FBI offices to get things done. Um, So, you know, and all of this is now compiled and stored (laughs) in like this digital system. That's not going anywhere. And one day, if there's a committee on on the Hill that wants to do it, they can ask for all of that right. um, and look at it. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're two years in. And so I think this would have looked very different at the very beginning um, before steps, you know, if somebody had really tried to block Mueller when he was first appointed um, at this point, they could still try to block him from moving forward. But my point was we're, you know, a year and a half in and he's already done a lot. Right. Um, So there's no way to truly stop it.
0: And blocking him doesn't block any of those leads he's passed on to other U.S. attorneys offices. No. You know, because Southern district, uh, U.S. Those are
1: entire cases that he's, he's given over. So those are now being run out of those, uh, you know, U.S. Attorney's offices, like you said, like the Michael Cohen case. Right. Uh, so get even if you were to put Mueller on a spaceship and send him to <laughs> the moon, um, you know, like, I'm sorry, but the Michael <laughs> Cohen case is going to continue.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, you know, I don't know. But I think this is all, um, you know, I know this. You, as an intelligent person who's curious about it, knows this. Uh, most lawyers or people who've worked in this field know this, but. You know, I think there's, again, a misinformation campaign to suggest that it is just Mueller and like his team of prosecutors and two other people and they've got nothing. Right. And that if you were to get rid of them, you know, it all goes all go away.
0: And it's all like sitting in boxes of paper on the floor somewhere. Right. Right. Because remember the story, there's a great story about when Archibald Cox was fired. uh, The um, the attorneys in that office were were kind of concerned that that would happen when the saturday night massacre happened there were there was there were indications that 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 could happen and mm-hmm. so they had prepared for that um and a bunch of them were out to dinner and when they learned the news they all ran to the office and started stuffing important files like into their pants down their wife's dresses and mm-hmm. getting in the elevator before the fbi came to seal the office but that's not yeah. even that's not even anything that we have to worry about now because so much of this is you know, this all electronic, it's yeah, a bunch it's of places. In, no,
1: you, you know, know. know, when I, um, when when James Comey was first fired, I wrote a piece for Politico um, because people were freaking out. I don't know, it, it feels like so long ago, but if you remember, <laughs> people were very shocked. And Politico asked me to write a piece, you know, answering people's questions about uh, you know, the firing of James Comey. So I went on Facebook and I said, what do you all want to know? And mm-hmm. I have some pretty smart friends, but they were like, you know, is somebody going to go and like burn all of these files? Like, you know, <laughs> and, so, yeah, and I was, I mean, of course my gut is, I was like, no, uh, they're not. But, you know, just to kind of be like absolutely sure, I called up a former special agent in, in charge of one of the field offices that I, I know well who had retired. And I said, how do I reassure people? And he like walked me through, because actually this is one of the things post 9-11 and this happened actually after I left the FBI was the overhaul of its entire case file system. Which, when I was there, was still paper based. I mean, it was still it wow. was in the computer system, and I think there still is a paper version, but like it hadn't become fully digi- digitized. Right. Um. And he said it is fully digitized. It's tamper-proof. Things are, you know, so there's something in in FBI files. It's called serializing, which means that every time you add a new document, it's it's given a number, so you know the number that it's put in. So you can't you can't like replace a dot uh especially in in the digital format you wouldn't be able to go back and like doctor one of the documents and stick it back in you know what i mean right i mean right. all these things are so and it's all booby trapped because you know after robert hansen they track like what cases you're looking at and stuff so you know and he told me that um in watergate i guess uh, the director of the fbi briefly under nixon it was uh last name was gray
0: boyden gray C. Boyden Gray, is that it?
1: Is that who it is? I don't know, but like so. the he he did actually burn some documents. Like there was, um, yes. was and like that's why evidence. that's why these people on Facebook are asking you this because this actually happened. <laughs> but you know, he's like, it cannot happen, and um, and I think that that's you know important because you know, given technology now, like you could literally burn down the entire FBI building, and all of that information would not go away. Um, so, you know, if in case in case somebody out there was going to, you know, try a Pablo Escobar move uh, like he did <laughs> on the Supreme Court, which is exactly what he did. He, right. he stormed the Supreme Court and burned down all of the evidence against him. Um, that is not possible in this situation.
0: Uh, I now have to make an apology. I'm sure he's a listener to C. Boyden Gray, who was the former White House counsel for Bush Sr., who I meant to oh, say... <laughs> L. Patrick Gray.
1: L. Patrick Gray, right? yes. See, it's the, first,
0: it's the first name initial that got me. So, I, okay.
1: My okay. apologize. Yeah, we to, just totally like misidentified. We pointed the finger right, at the wrong guy. Right,
0: day. right. So now everything we've said is completely tainted.
1: So. I know.
0: Too bad. Um, so, one of the things I like to do with guests is to talk to them about a topic they don't normally get to talk about. You talk about law and politics and the FBI um, all the time. You're on TV all the time yeah. and you're great. Um, you. But I also know, besides um, being a fan of wine and fries, you're also <laughs> a big fan of Shakespeare. So, yes, I would like to ask you if this describes anyone you know. This is from Measure for Measure. Yep, man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make angels weak that sound familiar to
1: you yeah You doesn't remind me of anybody that's so weird why would you pick that
0: i I don't know i don't know yeah
1: Uh, you know shakespeare in fact i was recently interviewed by um a shakespeare scholar at harvard for a book that he's writing about shakespeare and trump i believe um And I think that there, I think Shakespeare, I love it especially because I go and I watch these plays and there's always something there that offers an insightful commentary on, um, you know, what's going on right now. Uh, So, yeah. And I mean, or there's always something that, like, has a connection to today. So I went to go see Love's Labor's Lost, which is a comedy um, Mm -hmm. about four scholars who, you know, basically take a vow of chastity and claim that they're going to go study for three years, you know, in kind of monastic, uh, you know, silence or something. Um, And then, of course, four women show up and they all fall in love, so they're secretly Mm -hmm. trying to woo them. But one of the scenes is that they um, dress up as Russians and Uh (laughs) and (laughs) and try to woo these ladies and they're pretending to be... And it's just hilarious because it's just like man, like there's something in every single play that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be one of the, the tragedies or something super serious. Like even the comedies have something and measure for measure. I think is technically a comedy, yes. um, uh, you know, that, that has something that I feel like speaks to today.
0: Well, you know, considering there is such a big mystery about who Shakespeare really was, maybe we have to consider the possibility he's a time traveler.
1: Maybe he is. No, it's possible. Maybe he came and saw the horror of,
0: <laughs> of 2018,
1: of 2018. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and wrote all of his plays. I don't know. Yeah.
0: So I, I wonder sometimes when I'm thinking about Shakespeare, whether the Trump administration is Julius Caesar, the abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse mm-hmm. from power, mm-hmm. or is it King Lear? Thinkest thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows? to plain honors bound when majesty falls to folly. What do you think?
1: Or it could be Macbeth.
0: It could be Macbeth.
1: Because I always like to compare Mueller's investigation to Burnham Wood. Oh. Like creeping slowly on the White House. And, you know, I don't know that there's like like precise uh, cast, you know, that you can match up. But I also think that when Trump confesses on Twitter sometimes, to, you know or or mm-hmm. kind of does his no collusion routine that it's kind of like when Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking and washing the blood off her hands, like it's this guilty conscience that you see come out every now and then with uh with Trump about about Russia. So um I think uh I think Macbeth could be in there too.
0: That's a great point. That's a really great point. So I don't know if you have this experience going to see Shakespeare. I I sometimes don't like doing it because I can't understand what the actors are saying for like 30 minutes. Do you ever have Uh that experience?
1: Um, well, so I think the key is that it's so, okay. I would say a couple of things. Shakespeare's plays are meant to be heard and seen, not read. Right. Having said that, I do think it's worth reading them before going. Hmm because you know even if you're struggling a little bit to get through it you will get the story you'll get like the characters and who they are and then when you go to see it you already know that and then you can actually absorb more of the words and all of a sudden you're like oh my god that's what he's saying right
0: um
1: and you know i mean i i got into shakespeare partly by performing it um
0: oh really
1: yeah after law school i started a theater group at yale law school called the Court (laughs) <laughs> and we, our first uh, production was *The Merchant of Venice* in the courtyard, um, with a cameo by the dean playing the duke. Um, but after I graduated from law school, I spent instead of taking the bar exam, I went to Austin, Texas, and acted in a Shakespeare repertory theater. And I played Rosalind in *As You Like It*. So I had to memorize her whole, like the whole play, <laughs> um, yeah. and you know, that really gives you an appreciation for the language and how much just knowing the story and the characters can make a difference in when you hear it. And with my children, you know, one of the things that I've done is you can buy, um, like, kids' books, which basically tell the Shakespeare stories in story format, like in a narrative format, um, and just laying out the story. So before we go see a Shakespeare play, I have them read whatever the story is and they really actually get a lot out of it i'll see them laughing at some of the jokes and stuff and it's amazing
0: wow yeah i just gotta have to look out for that yeah I have, to, I have to share that with my kids great thank okay. you <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk
1: to me. yeah i'm so glad we finally got a time to connect
0: yeah me too i really appreciate it enjoy the rest of your day
1: okay take care
0: take care bye that'll wrap up this episode my thanks to asha rangapa for being my guest today Thanks also to Joe Luciano, Mark Eisenberg, and all my friends at ICT4. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, be well.